A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 161 of Confessions of a Marketer, the age of quantitative creative. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Travis Chambers is in for a discussion about quantitative creative. We'll get to that in just a moment. Right, we have four more episodes of Confessions of a Marketer left with Marty McDonald, David Etheridge, Nicholas Vandenberg, and Keith Cartwright all on deck. So stay tuned. As I told you last week, I'm putting Confessions of a Marketer on hiatus to pursue some other ideas in the podcasting area. I'll have those plans shortly, but I want to thank you all for listening to Confessions of a Marketer. It's been a pleasure. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. Okay, on to Travis Chambers. He says this is the age of quantitative creative and that there's a science behind creativity and content. Well, I was kind of skeptical and we dig into that and also find out how he approaches the creative process. Plus, he shares some advice for all of you. It was a great chat. Let's get to it. Travis, welcome to Confessions of a Marketer. It's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So can you share your background and what you're up to at Chamber Media? I understand you have something of a crazy backstory. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, it is a really wild backstory. Just a chain of very random events. Um, My wife and I were finishing school. We made a funny viral video and it went pretty big. We were on Good Morning America and Tosh.0. Huh. Then the agency that I had wanted to work at for many years, one of the hardest to get into, Crispin Porter and Bogusky called, and they wanted to license our video for Kraft Mac and Cheese campaign. Huh. And they said, well, I'll license it to you for free if you give me an interview. Sure enough, they gave us the job, flew out to LA, and then I became the kind of Resident understudy of viral video. Yeah. And then Turkish Airlines came one day and said, we want to make the most viral ad of all time. And you've got Kobe Bryant and Lionel Messi at your disposal. Wow. And so they kind of like allowed me to silo myself on a three and a half million dollar media budget, all digital. Yeah. Which sounds like a lot, but to make the most viral ad of all time, that was about a tenth of what I really needed. And we did the largest influencer activation of all time. We had 650 influencers involved. We did a lot of video SEO. We reached out to 8,000 editors with the team of 20 interns in multiple languages. We did all sorts of really crazy viral seeding stuff. 
and it worked. We got 150 million views on that, 3 million shares, and it was crowned the most viral ad of the decade by YouTube and Google. And then 20th Century Fox called, it's going over there, and so is the director of social media on you know, Planet of the Apes and a lot of those things. I thought that was my dream job and found out it was not my dream job, that Hollywood, yeah. especially 20th Century Fox, was not the place for me. So that's when I started Chamber Media. And it kind of took all of that kind of branding, that brand awareness styled marketing that a lot of the bigger ad agencies, bigger brands, Fortune 500 brands do, having worked on, you know, Vitamin Water and, you know, Kraft and Mondelez brands and, you know, a whole bunch of other brands. And we started really trying to figure out how to meld that with direct response specifically for social ads. Because at this time, you know, YouTube ads were starting to take off and, Obviously, it was a teeny, teeny piece of the overall media landscape, but we thought it was going to be big. And, you know, a couple of years ago, digital spending overtook traditional ad spending, overtook traditional print, TV, radio. And that's pretty much what we've been doing ever since. We've got 30 people now. We've got a 5,000 square foot film studio and we're shooting over 100 productions a year. And then we have a bunch of ad buyers in-house that are, we're running the ad. So we're kind of like creative and media buying all under one roof. And, you know, a lot of these productions are six figure productions for specifically for social. And in just the last couple of years, we've tripled the revenue of five multi-million dollar companies with very few outside other marketing efforts happening. So that's it. That's how we're here now. And you're in Boise and you've got an office down in Salt Lake City too. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Both cities I've never been to, but both cities I'd love to go to someday. Yeah. They both have a lot to offer. If you ever managed to get down to, you know, Sundance, it's pretty amazing back there in the Wasatch Mountains yeah. in Utah. Yeah. There's like 30 ski resorts back there. It's just nuts. Right. So you say this is the age of quantitative creative and that there's a science behind creativity and content. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So... One thing that really bothered us was the fact that we were just pulling creative out of thin air, as artists do. You know how it is. It's very qualitative. Yeah. It's very subjective. And one of the things that really bothered me in the traditional agency kind of Fortune 500 brand world is how subjective and political it was. A lot of people were trying to make creative to win awards. A lot of people were trying to make creative to please their superiors, to advance their careers, but not a lot of people were very focused on the revenue that it would drive because at that level, it's very difficult to do that. You can measure brand lift, right? You can measure total sales lift. But other than that, it's not very trackable. So with social, it is trackable. It's about 60 to 80% attributable. Yeah. So it's not perfect by any means, but there's enough there that you can measure performance. And so what we did is we took the thousands of pieces of creative that we've ran over the last six years and we put them into a library. We called it the brain. And what we did is we categorized every single ad based on what return on ad spend it got and the account, where it performed the best in the funnel, and then what type of ad it was. And we've identified over 200 different types of ads. So for example, there's uh, maybe 10 different types of product demonstrations. You know, mm -hmm. there's hands-only, there's stop-motion animation, there's illustration, there's spokesperson style. There's all these different ways to shoot every single ad. And so what this did is it helped us to identify six key categories of the most 
likely ads that convert and where they need to run in a sequence in order to get the best conversion. And so that's kind of where the quantitative creative thinking was born, because now we can look at an ad account and we can actually run a gap analysis against the brain and figure out where the holes may be in their account. And then there's still the qualitative, artistic, subjective guessing game of what kind of creative, but we've made it as formulaic as possible. So it's, you've kind of got a guidebook for your clients. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good way to put it. So how do you approach the creative process? And and what advice would you give my listeners who are looking at getting engaged in video and creative and content? So there's two routes to go about this. So one route is just take the formula that we've found through data. And that's a good way to get started. But the other route is how to be truly unexpected. Mm -hmm. And the first path I'll talk about first is we found that if you make a spokesperson anchor video, so a human face that's explaining the problem and the solution in a very engaging video, if you have that running at the top of your ads at a prospecting level, and then if you have these six ads running underneath it, if you have a product demonstration, a social proof video, which is where you, you know, you talk about your press features, your customer reviews, those kind of things. Closer ads. Closer ads would be like overcoming objections, discounts, urgency plays, things like that. Case studies, any type of before and after. If you have any clinical studies, if you have any claims of any kind. The next one is lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So lifestyle, just evoking emotion, focusing really heavy on ethos and making people feel something. And then sevens unboxing, just showing the product arriving and opening it. So what we found is generally speaking, those are the categories that will give you the quickest path from A to B. But as far as the creative process goes, you know, that doesn't solve the creative process itself. And so what we found is a number one characteristic that we found that really helps with ad performance is unexpectedness. So here I just prescribed a pattern and patterns are expected. They're predictable. But on the other side of true creativity, you have to channel this ability to connect dots that aren't there to kind of follow these bubble thoughts to paths that don't fully make sense and then Mm -hmm. tie it back to something that does make it relevant at the very end. And there's there's a whole bunch of tricks and things that we use to be able to do that. Can you tell me a few? Sure. Yeah. One of the things we'll do is uh, if I found is a good size is two or three people. If you have more than that, then there's too, there's too much noise. Yeah. Fewer than that, you don't have enough fringe thoughts. So two to three people or one person maybe equals 10 ideas, two to three people can equal hundreds of ideas. And so what we'll do is, is you'll draw the idea, maybe an obvious idea that probably anyone would think of. Okay, Geico, let's make a gecko. All right. Most obvious idea ever. Yeah. You draw that circle. And then what you do is you say, okay, what ideas could connect to this? And then you draw out another bubble. And then you, from those fringe ideas, you just continue to progress along the fringe. Do that four or five times until you just have this giant thing. Then what you do is you pick the one that really feels unexpected, feels really out there, feels like something that may startle someone or that may surprise them or or just it just feels 
almost out of place. Mm-hmm. And then you'll find a way to tie that because usually once you get to the outer edges, it seems like it has nothing to do with the original idea. So then what you have to do is you have to find some story arc that connects it to the original idea. And there's a really good book called Made to Stick where they talk about how to virality usually is something where you surprise someone, you take them completely by surprise, you almost create confusion, and then you tie them back to where it makes sense at the end. And so that's what we do. It's almost like dissonance in music, right? So where you have things that seem at odds, but then they kind of resolve themselves. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect way to put it. You have like a minor key that'll hold, especially in classical music. Yeah. And then, and then it'll resolve. That's exactly what it is. It makes people uncomfortable. It makes them think. It makes them consider. It makes them reason, have critical thought. It also has that kind of, you know, purple cow theory where it's just so strange that they, they'll actually pay attention to it because their brain doesn't really have a predetermined process for it. So the brain will say, oh, what is this thing? You know, so it's just like yeah. the immune system getting, uh, you know, something that it hasn't experienced before. It's going to focus yeah. on it. And so some examples of how we've done this, we had a pool fence company, you know, it just helps kids stay out of the pool. So what we ended up with with this exercise is an Amish couple who has 50 children that they're trying to keep out of the pool. Yeah. <laughs> Another one was credit repair. Really difficult. Creditrepair.com. Yeah. How do you make a three or four minute spot about fixing your credit without offending people? Right, right. So we filled a baseball stadium with 300 extras and we just did a three, four minute metaphor about this person at bat hitting foul balls and it kept, and the people in the audience kept getting hit by these foul balls. Yeah. <laughs> and we just talked about that's how it feels like when you're, you've got a credit ding or something is it feels like you got hit by a foul ball. And yeah. then we started relating the seating in the stadium to your credit score. So the people behind home plate had a great credit score so they could get a hot dog for a dollar. And then further out in the stadium, they had to pay $5 for a hot dog. And then in the back stands in the sides and in the field, they weren't even allowed to buy a hot dog. Right. It wasn't even possible. That's a good metaphor. Yeah. And that video drove over 20 million in, in rev- track revenue. And so th- that exercise of unexpectedness, I think it's what separates good creatives from really truly great creatives. Yeah. So we see video all over the place these days, don't we? And I'm interested in where companies should focus their attention for social videos. They seem to be everywhere. They autoplay in LinkedIn, which irritates me. (laughs) But where should companies focus their attention? So Facebook is the evil necessity. (laughs) Is Facebook good for mankind? I don't know. (laughs) Is it good for advertisers? It is very good. As you know, they've got such a deep level of data, an unprecedented level of data. They know where you eat. They know where you shop. They know whether or not you're married, if you have kids, if you have grandparents, if you're going to go visit someone in another city. They know all these things because all the third-party data, all the credit card purchases, rewards, cards, what you're viewing, they know everything about you. Yeah. And because of that, they're able to tell you what you want before you even know you want it. You know, everyone thinks Facebook's listening to us, but really the truth is that's just showing the power of the predictive AI and machine learning that they've built. The fact that you're talking about something and then that day you see an ad for it. Yeah. It's, it's coincidence. That's how powerful it is. You know, you're going to visit your friend in St. Louis and it offers you tickets to a game in St. Louis, you know. Right, right. So we always like to start with Facebook 
for that reason, that you get such quick feedback data and that the data is so rich. And it's, it's also an environment that's a lot like TV where you can interrupt people without any context. Mm-hmm. And Google's not that way. Google usually requires some level of context. You got to be searching for something. You got to be interested specifically in something. And that's, I think that's the reason that Google doesn't get as much criticism because in nature, it's just not as sinister. You know, there's yeah, a- I'm, ser- I'm searching for sneakers. So I understand I'm going to see an ad for sneakers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so we've seen the two work well. About 80% of our media spends are on those two platforms alone. Most brands can scale into millions of dollars a month in ad spend just on those platforms alone, being Facebook, Instagram, Google search, display, and YouTube. Mm -hmm. There's just a monstrous amount of volume there. And I think a lot of brands, especially larger brands, they still think that you just can't scale very much on digital. That was true three years ago. It's just not true anymore. You can scale to four, five, six, seven million a month in spend in most cases. And at a certain point, your efficiency does start to drop off. And that's where you can start layering in TV. You can start running, you know, Pinterest, TikTok, Snapchat, you know, Bing, Amazon, like I said, you can run all these different other platforms. And I think what's happening right now is in the same way that you have national TV has fractured into cable, where you have literally hundreds and hundreds of channels that you could buy through. The same thing is happening now with digital. You can buy on Hulu now. You can buy on all these OTT apps. And I think eventually what's going to happen is all these OTT platforms like Hulu. I think I do predict Netflix eventually will, will run ads. Their business model is not sustainable without ads. It's at some point, those will all kind of converge and there'll be a lot of tracking data there. You know, smart devices and smart TVs will get more advanced at attribution and tracking. It'll be easier for people to click on things and to purchase. And so I think at some point, these things are all going to kind of converge. And there's going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of digital channels. You know, social media ad platforms will continue to fracture and people will start to split into, oh, I'm I'm more of a TikTok guy. You know, I'm more of a Snapchat person. I'm more of a Pinterest person. Those things will all start to spread and which will make make ad buying more complicated in the long run, but it will also make it so there's more volume and and there's more scalability there as well. I don't know about you, but on Netflix, I seem to spend more time looking for a show to watch or a movie (laughs) to watch than I do watching. So Me too. That seems to me that's where they should put the ads. Uh, When you're scrolling through, they could take up some real estate. If they want to put ads there, I don't think people would object to them. If they were interrupting the shows or if they were before and after the shows, that may cause some kind of objection. But you know, I think that, you know, they've got a captive audience on what, whatever they call that, their homepage or, you know, where you scroll through and search for things. Seems like that's a built-in audience that is perfect for ads. That's a great idea. I never thought about that before, but that, that does make a lot of sense. I do think, too, there's a lot of data to support pre-roll. Obviously, no one likes ads, but yeah. they seem to not mind as much when there's an ad, especially if it's skippable or if it's 30 seconds before the content starts, we've been programmed for that. You know, every movie theater plays previews, right? you know, and so we're programmed for that. But I agree with you. Facebook has tested the mid-roll ads where they show up in the middle and they they don't work and they they really tick people off. Yeah, here in the podcast land, mid-rolls can be very effective because they're host-read. 
and it doesn't really interrupt the flow of the show in theory. And, but, you know, and it coincides with radio. Right. Yeah. And it's a different medium. But let's talk about the future and, and what you see the future holding for video and social video ads. Yeah. So I think what we're going to start seeing is we're going to start seeing a lot of the big brands, Fortune 500 brands, they're going to start being more direct response focused. They're going to start taking a page out of the As Seen on TV and QVC book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're also going to see a lot of smaller challenger brands. They start taking a page out of Nike's book and P&G's book of making strong brand awareness ads. That's really what's missing right now because three years ago, two, two, three years ago, if you were really good at ad buying, but you had really bad, low quality ad content, in general, you could still get really good performance out of your ad account. That's becoming less and less possible Mm because now you can have really great creative, but a very average, maybe even below average ad buyer, and you can get really good performance. And the reason for that is because there were all these tricks that you could pull. And I'm sure you remember the search days where you could put white copy on a white background and you could manipulate the SEO. And now that those days are over, the same thing's happening now on these social platforms. They want it to be as simple as possible. Facebook's ultimate goal, I talked to a vice president at Facebook. She said that their ultimate goal is that Facebook, you'll be able to push a button and run ads. And that will never be possible on the creative side. But I think at some point, the machine learning will get so advanced that it'll just do all the work for you. And now they have something called CBO, campaign budget optimization. It's just getting more and more simple to buy ads. And so I think that the future is all in creative. And we used to have about two thirds of our revenue be ad buying and one third was creative. And this last 14 months or so, we slowed down on the ad buying management side and we have sped up on the creative side. And what is so fascinating to see is our revenues up about 30% during this virus recession that's happening mm-hmm. right now. That's good news. That's great news for us. I think there's a lot of luck there. And we've had a lot of unlucky situations before. So I feel like... I feel like it's our time to have some luck here. Sure. (laughs) You know how it is, the ups and downs of business. Oh, yeah. But the creative side is just exploding. And the reason is everyone is saying, you know, I got to have something different. I got to have something that, you know, when when you're in the best economy in human history, it's really easy to just kind of coast, you know, and, and to just kind of take it easy and not really focus that much on sales or marketing. But now what we're seeing is, the phone, I mean, we're getting 30 leads a day and these all these people are just saying, I've got to improve my creative. I have got to stick out. I have got to be better if I'm going to make it through this thing. Well, that's good. So I think creative is the future. You know, in the TV world, creative is the epicenter and then the media buying is kind of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just choosing TV channels. You're choosing out of home. You're choosing print, radio, all these things. And it's a numbers game at that point, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that this digital world is going to start to drift towards the the old school CMO traditional marketing play where you're not going to be able to track everything. Yeah. You know, I think attribution is going to evolve a lot too. Right now, everyone's so obsessed, overly obsessed with attribution and tracking where everything happens. But the truth is, once you get into the millions of month in ad spend, you just can't track everything perfectly. And at some point, you have to go the old school route and say, is total revenue up or is total revenue down? And start playing around with your media mix. 
And you just have to look at your directional data, but you can't try and, because what happens is when people try to perfectly attribute everything, they start underspending. They'll say, well, I could spend 50,000 here a month because I know I'm going to get a four to one return. But if I spend 500,000 a month, I might only get a two to one return. Right. But as you get bigger, what happens is you have more sales channels. So now instead of just selling on your website, well, now you're on Amazon. Now you're on Home Depot and Lowe's.com, Target, Walmart.com. There's all these other online retailers. Then you get into physical retail and digital drives to physical retail extremely well. We've seen huge lifts there. So you start to get all these channels that you have to measure. And we'll we'll take um, Google Data Studio and we'll build out all of these channels and we'll measure them all together. We'll compare them all and then we'll start running spends in different areas. And it's quite a dance. It's pretty sophisticated thing to figure out where to spend in order to get sales pumping across the board. It'll be interesting to watch as various media mature, they become similar to the media that preceded them. So it's kind of interesting seeing video on the internet and social video maturing and becoming more like uh, TV and more like, uh, you know, the media that preceded it. That's so true. You know, I'm only 31 years old. When I first got into this in my early 20s, I had a pretty big kind of ego about it, that this is going to be the future, that it was going to be completely different. Everything was going to change. Kind of had that millennial attitude about it. And now I'm realizing... It's actually the exact same as it's always been. You still have the same concepts, the same, you know, we have not really invented anything new. It's just a new medium and a new format. And the only difference is it just allows you more. The box has gotten bigger. Now you can make a 15 second ad on social or you can make a five minute ad. And so you're able to say a lot more. You're able to do a lot more. It's really hard to say anything meaningful in 15 seconds or 30 seconds. You can't develop a character. Right. You can't build up any really great jokes. You know, it's very difficult to do that. And so it has created a kind of a new style of creative that, that I haven't really seen before. Before, you just had the 15 and 30 second yeah. or you had the full length infomercial. And there just wasn't a lot in between. And now social is living in that in-between world. I did a lot of video early in my career. I'm a lot older than you. And I remember taking, you know, three quarter inch video cassettes out into the field and recording. And the barrier to entry then was high. If you wanted to do video, you had to spend a lot of money just to get it produced. And now the, you know, the barrier to entry for brands and for the actual technical creation of a video are much lower. And widespread too. That's the, you know, everybody can edit video now. So, so it's much more uh, democratic, if you will. That's a perfect way to put it. The democratization of video production. And, and you remember in the nineties, most things were shot on film. Yeah, I think George Lucas was one of the first ones to start shooting on digital, but you, it was extremely expensive to process film. There was this monstrous barrier to entry and that's why the studios were able to hold on to that power so long, even when the whole music industry imploded on itself and all the labels kind of went away because it got so easy to just make a Grammy award winning record in your basement. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so we've seen that progression too. So the DSLR, in my opinion, was the biggest change in technology. You know, the Canon Mark V, yeah. the Canon 
60. That changed things. And that was about 15 years ago. And then you started to evolve into the black magic cameras. And then it really took off when the red cameras came out. Yeah. Because now you were truly shooting cinema quality. I mean, as you know, digital in most cases still doesn't have the resolution that film had. Right. That medium format, that resolution is really amazing. Digital is just catching up to it now. Yeah. Even 4K is not film quality. Yeah. It's not even close. Yeah. And there's all these coloring issues too. I mean, in the film industry, you've got over a hundred years of coloring chemistry and science. Yeah. People have spent a hundred years fine-tuning the coloring that you can even get different film for what skin color of person you're shooting. And so digital is just catching up to that. You know, Apple has a few hundred employees whose job is just to tweak coloring on the software, on the the iPhone camera. Mm -hmm. And so now you can shoot pretty close to cinema quality stuff on your phone. The resolution won't be there. You can't really necessarily blow it up huge. But for digital consumption, you don't really need that format. Yeah. And so we've noticed it with ourselves. Four years ago, we would not produce or shoot anything under 100 grand. Yeah. Now we've got stuff as cheap as five, $6,000 a month, and we're making multiple videos. Yeah. Because now you've got these people now, these young people who grew up with it. They've had a smartphone since they were 12 years old. Yeah. And they understand lighting and they understand, you know, things that used to take a whole decade to learn. They they just grew up with it. It's just second nature. Yeah. Well, the cameras back in the day when I was early in video were really finicky and you had to get the lighting exactly right. And you, you needed someone who knew how to do lighting. And now lighting is more kind of common sense, you know, and the cameras are uh, not nearly as finicky as, uh, you know, a, an Ikigami camera in the 1980s. It, they actually work more efficiently, I think. That's absolutely true. And- absolutely. I mean... Think about 20 years ago, it was almost impossible to shoot in low light. Yeah. Just impossible with that mechanical, you know, lens. And now you've got these cameras that can shoot in like a half moonlight. Right. (laughs) And capture every detail almost better than the human eye. And so this technology is making very average filmmakers become great. And I love that. And the reason I love that is because, you know, storytelling, there shouldn't be a technical barrier to that. Yeah. You know, like, let's say you or me, let's say we wanted to go make an album right now. If you are trying to be the artist and also be the producer, it's just not going to happen unless you're extremely talented because you're going to get caught up in all these technical aspects of it and you're going to miss the story. You're going to miss the the human element in the originality. And so I'm a fan of taking out that technical element or if you're shooting or creating something, having someone that's in charge of that technical element so you can really focus on the story at hand. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of the current technology. And it seems to me that the future is it's going to get better. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything's getting more automated, more perfected. And I mean, just as predicted, the robots are doing a lot of people's jobs. And, you know, just as predicted, all the rudimentary, technical, repetitive tasks are going to continue to disappear. And so our value, our human value is always going to be in that original storytelling and that original creation. You know, the human mind is still the most powerful computer on earth. And there are supercomputers who can handle more processes than the human brain can. 
but they're not complex processes. They they can only handle rules and processes that are in a, in a strong framework, like winning at a chess match, you know, or jeopardy or jeopardy (laughs) or pulling up information, but they can't develop what it feels like to look at a rose. Yeah. They can't compute that. So the human brain is still, you know, decades ahead of what any computer will be able to do. And that's, that's where our artificial intelligence will come into play to be able to, you know, create all those processes and to learn. But the creative aspect is, I think it's the most innovative place that you can be. And that's part of the reason, like I said, we've really started to shift our business towards creative. It's a lot of those technical ad buying oriented practice, you know, work. It's just going to get easier and easier to do. Well, hey, this has been a fascinating discussion, Travis. Anytime I can geek out on video for a little while and uh, it harkens back to the early years of my career, I, I always jump at the chance. It was great to chat. Thank you so much. All right. Next time, Marty McDonald on social media. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. Stay healthy and see you next time. You stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.